If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour as we move around the world and cover the news of the day here on TNT Radio. On today's show, whilst it looks like no charges will be brought against Joe Biden for mishandling classified documents, Republicans are pushing ahead with attempts to charge Anthony Fauci. And can Rishi Sunak turn his fortunes around with the appointment of a conservative crony and globalist David Cameron, who has returned to high office? Meanwhile, Dr. Thomas Binder makes a plea to all of us to stand up and demand our politicians do not go ahead with the World Health Organization's plans to rule over our health, no questions asked. But first today, a wrap-up of the latest details from the war in Gaza and the Middle East. The director of Gaza's main medical complex said the situation inside our Shifa hospital is catastrophic as an Israeli army raid continues. The Palestinian Health Ministry said Israeli forces have taken the bodies of slain Palestinians that were dying in the courtyard of Al Shifa Hospital. The director of the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza says the facility is now completely out of service. Gaza telecom firms say all services have gone down amid a lack of electricity, drawing alarm from rights groups and Palestinian officials. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees says the telecommunications outage makes it impossible to manage or coordinate humanitarian aid convoys. Hamas chief Ishmael Haniyeh said he's confident in Palestine's ability to outlast the Israeli offensive on Gaza and emerge victorious from the war. Israeli forces have raided the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. The confrontations are underway. His UNRWA chief, Felipe Lazzarini, says he believes there is a deliberate attempt to strangle our operation in Gaza. Hamas's armed wing claimed responsibility for a shooting at the tunnels checkpoint near Jerusalem, killing one Israeli soldier with three Palestinians killed as well. And the heads of humanitarian organisations have pledged not to involve themselves in the creation of any safe zones in Gaza without the participation of all parties. Meanwhile, this image obtained by Reuters is meant to be of arms captured inside a hospital by Israeli forces. Israeli Defence Forces confirmed on Thursday that its military operations at the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza are ongoing after the Palestinian National Authority's official press agency said forces had raided the medical facility for the second time in a day. The IDF said it found Hamas grenades and assault rifles inside the hospital. The military also said Thursday night that IDF troops had found an operational tunnel shaft and a vehicle containing a large number of weapons inside the hospital. Hamas rejected accusations that it had been using the hospital for military purposes, describing the claims as nothing but lies and cheap propaganda. Meanwhile, Israel's president, Yitzhak Herzog, warned that a very strong force will be needed in Gaza in the near future as the country seeks to avoid a return to power of the militant group Hamas. Herzog, who has no executive power, said, if we pull back, then who will take over? We can't leave a vacuum. No one will want to turn this place, Gaza, into a terror base again. Meanwhile, Hamas has denied Israel's claims, and this report provides its own argument that such claims were planted there. We join this report now from Al Jazeera. 
This ridiculous play is used by the occupation forces to cover up their claims. It became clear to everyone the lies of the occupation and the U.S. administration, which promoted those claims without giving evidence. RFU rifles and a military uniform and a shoe, which were brought in by the occupation forces to the MRI room, does all of that make it a command center for Al-Qassam brigades? Look at these boxes. Look closer at the label. Cameras filmed Israeli forces entering the hospital with these boxes. The next photo exposes them. These are the boxes the forces carried into the hospital. And this is the same label on the box from the previous photo. They brought weapons from other places and put it in the rooms of the hospital to claim these are the weapons found in Al-Shifa hospital. Pink Floyd co-founder Roger Waters was denied hotel rooms in the capitals of Argentina and Uruguay due to allegations of anti-Semitism from Uruguay's Israeli lobby, local media reported on Wednesday. Waters attempted to book hotel rooms in two Buenos Aires hotels for his This Is Not A Drill tour later this month, but reservations at both were cancelled, he told Argentinian newspaper Pagina 12. The Fiena Hotel claimed that they were undergoing refurbishment while the Alvia Hotel first approved Waters bookings for 10 rooms, then cancelled it, he explained. Hotels in Uruguay's capital of Montevideo also rejected Waters while declining to furnish an explanation, the musician said, complaining that he was unable to attend a dinner date with the country's former president, Jose Mujica, due to being cancelled by the Israeli lobby. Somehow these idiots of the Israeli lobby managed to co-opt all the hotels in Buenos Aires and Montevideo and organise this extraordinary boycott based on the malicious lies about me, the singer said. The president of the Central Israelite Committee of Uruguay and the B'nai B'rith NGO, Roby Schindler and Franklin Rosenfeld, had threatened to launch a campaign against the Sofitel hotel chain if Waters was allowed to stay there. And no winner has yet been declared in the presidential elections in Liberia. With results in from more than 85% of polling stations in the runoff election there, opposition candidate Joseph Bouquet is slightly ahead of President George Weir. Bouquet so far has 50.6% of the vote, while Weir is on 49.4%, according to the Election Commission. The two were separated by just over 7,000 votes in the first round in October, which triggered Tuesday's runoff. A former international football star, Weir, 57, is seeking a second term. He became president after comfortably defeating Bukai, who is 78, in a runoff in 2017. Bukai served as vice president in the government of Nobel Peace Laureate Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who stepped down as Liberia's leader after the 2017 election. The latest results from Tuesday's runoff come after votes from just over 5,000 of the 5,890 polling stations have been collated. It is unclear when the final result will be out. The election commission has 15 days from polling day to announce it. And former New Jersey governor, an aspiring Republican presidential candidate, Chris Christie has condemned isolationism and urged Americans to double down on funding the Ukraine war effort, describing it as a good return on investment. Speaking at the Hudson Institute in Washington on Wednesday, Christie argued that he was the only serious Republican presidential candidate in terms of showing moral clarity to the world, often praising Democrat and the current President Joe Biden while taking pot shots at GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. 
Our strategy in Ukraine is driven by a principled commitment to support Ukrainians fighting and dying for their country, Christie said at one point. He added that he would have provided more weapons and sooner than Biden wouldn't have tried to blackmail Kiev for dirt on Biden, as he and the Democrats claimed Trump had done. Christie pointed out that he had visited Kiev and met with President Vladimir Zelensky, who told him that without American help, Ukraine would now be occupied by Russia. Zelensky also said that Ukraine did not need any American soldiers, only weapons to win the war by itself, Christie added. And the next generation of Ukrainians or their offspring may end up fighting if Ukraine's conflict with Russia becomes frozen at this stage, said President Zelensky, who has told a group of visiting journalists in Kiev. He also said his government is working to prevent such an outcome. The Ukrainian head of state's latest comments made on Wednesday follow an admission by the country's top military commander, General Valery Zaluzhny, that Kiev and Moscow are locked in a stalemate, with neither side apparently in a position to launch a decisive offensive. Asked about the prospect, Zelensky insisted that if there was a stalemate and a frozen conflict, we have to honestly say that our children or our grandchildren will have to fight something Kiev wants to avoid, he added. According to the president, though his country has already lost too many people, Ukraine cannot afford to even think about freezing the conflict, however hard it may be. If we want to end the war, we must end it, he proclaimed, insisting that Russia must be put in its place or else it would strike again later on. In an interview with Reuters last week, Zelensky stated that his country would continue fighting until it recaptured all territories within its 1991 borders, despite large swathes now being part of Russia, even if the US withdraws support. Earlier last week, he claimed that Kiev had a plan that would help bring some results on the battlefield by the end of the year. And in a blockbuster report from award-winning journalist Alex Newman, climate science is apparently not settled after all, with new peer-reviewed papers confirming that global warming is not caused by carbon dioxide, as we've been brainwashed to believe. Here is Newman being interviewed on Crossroads with Josh Phillip. Well, there's a series of three new peer-reviewed papers published in major prestigious scientific journals just over the last month or so. And uh, taken together, they completely undermine the alleged scientific consensus on man-made global warming. Um, one of them found that about 40% of the observed warming can be explained away using the urban heat island effect. So to try to summarize that, basically a lot of these thermometers were put out there in an open field, in a rural area, a city was built up around it, and so it gets warmer, obviously, not because there's global warming, but because there's a city around the thermometer. Uh, the rest of the warming, they found, can be easily explained using changes in uh, solar activity that NASA has been tracking meticulously for many decades. And so uh, right now these are in the peer-reviewed literature and instead of responding to this you've got the climate establishment going on Twitter and saying these guys are basically poo-poo heads and clowns and deniers. Uh, so you know, at, at this point, you wonder, do they have a scientific response? Because if they did, they would probably write a peer-reviewed paper to refute the ones that just undermined their, their claims. What was the kind of hole in the, the wall that brought this about, so to speak? Uh, you're right. It is very hard to get any peer-reviewed studies in the journals uh, because there's there's almost like a, an iron wall blocking this. And we, we got some insight into this during the ClimateGate scandal in 2009 when a bunch of emails were hacked and leaked to the public showing a bunch of uh, so-called climate scientists, in fact, some of the leading so-called climate scientists, conspiring to hide their data from other researchers, conspiring to hide the decline in global temperatures, and conspiring to silence any scientists who wouldn't go along with the narrative, keep them 
out of the journals, keep them out of uh, the, you know TV, media interviews, etc. And so what happened is these papers were just really solid. Um, you know, these three journals that published them, they're not known for being uh, you know climate denier uh, publications, but the science was very sound. Uh, they did one special issue in the journal Climate, for example. They had uh, some guest editors, including Dr. Ned Nikolov, uh, who I wrote about back in 2017. They looked at this. They said, wow, you know, th- this is correct as best as we can tell so the peers looked at it they accepted it and um, you know this is a really prestigious team Josh we're talking about almost 40 scientists from around the world Uh, the lead author Dr. Willie Soon one of the world's top astrophysicists if not the top astrophysicist used to be at the Harvard Smithsonian you've got uh, Ronan Connolly uh, these are very, very well established, very prestigious, highly credentialed experts, and um, you know it, it's good to to finally see some alternative viewpoints published in the peer-reviewed literature. I think the dam is finally cracking, John. There is a real possibility that diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Russia could be entirely severed. The foreign minister in Moscow has warned, while Russia wants to avoid such a scenario, Washington's insistence on confrontational policies makes the situation ever more likely, it said. Relations between the two nuclear powers hit rock bottom after Russia's year-long confrontation with Ukraine led in early 2022 to military action. The Kremlin claims that Washington is using Kiev as a proxy to effectively wage a war against Moscow. In a statement on Thursday that marked the 90th anniversary of the restoration of diplomatic ties between the US and the USSR, the Russian foreign ministry said that there is a risk that these relations can be severed at any moment again. The ministry blamed this on irresponsible U.S. policies that promote further escalation and on Washington's pursuit of Moscow's strategic defeat. And the inaugural Conference of Australians for Science and Freedom brings together thinkers and community leaders to share learnings, formulate plans and help establish new and emerging networks and organisations to restore a thriving Australian society founded on science and freedom. You can join the exciting lineup of health professionals, science economists, lawyers, journalists, and community leaders to discuss a range of hot issues, including healthcare policy, democracy and human rights, education, the media, and the role of grassroots organisations. The Australians for Science and Freedom Conference will be held at the University of New South Wales High Street, Kensington, in New South Wales from 8.30am to 6pm tomorrow and 8.30am to 4pm on Sunday. Plus, TNT Radio will be broadcasting from the conference. Tickets are available now at scienceandfreedom.org. And coming up after the break, Republicans are building their case against Anthony Fauci. You're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. You should hear what Patrick Henningsen's talking about. So all the Israelis are really escalating air attacks and bombing attacks uh, to a degree that we haven't even seen before. Why this escalation? Why is it happening right now? This is a big problem. And this has been going on now for four weeks, ladies and gentlemen. And still no calls for a ceasefire, no definitive or categorical calls anyway from the U.S. leadership, from those who, from the onset, let's face it, they were backing this military action by Israel uh, on the Gaza Strip. And everybody thought, well, how bad could it be? How long could it go? Here we are a month later. We're still here. We're still talking to you. We're still reporting this. And another hospital was uh, hit last night as well. Well over 30 medical facilities and hospitals have been uh, hit and uh, taken out of action. In some cases, pulverized by the Israeli occupation forces or the IDF as it's uh, widely known. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. A better business tip from TNT Radio. 
News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. This This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. According to House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, Republicans are in the process of constructing their argument against Anthony Fauci, the former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In a conversation with Jim Jordan, podcaster Benny Johnson said, so specifically before your committee and also before Rand Paul over in the Senate, Dr. Fauci has, of course, absolved himself of all funding of gain of function. He said he didn't know anything about it. Is it verifiable and demonstrable that he lied? Now, there are codes in Congress. I have a code right here, 18 US Code 1001. Johnson observed that there were statements, false statements to Congress. Says if you can be imprisoned, says you can be imprisoned for eight years if you lie to Congress. It seems like there have never been a more clear-cut case of some individual lying to Congress. Jordan responded affirmatively, suggesting, yeah, we can do it. There could be a referral but you would refer to the Biden Justice Department. I don't know that they're going to pursue it, but you can definitely do that. You can have one of the committees and the Senate Judiciary Committee could do a referral. I doubt that they will be the Democrats in charge. We could do a referral potentially, Jordan went on. I would frankly prefer to just have Dr. Fauci come back in and take another round of questions here but we're building the case. You know, like we've had Dr. Redfield testify and Chairman Wenstrup did, I thought he was, I thought he was great and were the other witnesses that we brought in. Dr. Fauci has reported receiving death threats in response to the Republican Party's proposition to initiate legal proceedings against him. I mean, they don't like to have me getting death threats all the time. Every time someone gets up and spouts some nonsense that's misinformation, disinformation and outright lies, somebody somewhere decides they want to do harm to me or my family, Fauci alleged. That's the part of it that's really unfortunate. In December of last year, Republican Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky released a strongly worded statement directed towards Dr. Anthony Fauci upon the latter's retirement. In an interview, Fauci, who expressed no remorse regarding his management of the pandemic, was queried about potential alterations he would make in his approach to the COVID-19 epidemic. According to Paul, likely there is no public figure or public health figure that has made a greater error in judgment than Fauci. The error in judgment was to fund gain-of-function research in a totalitarian country, fund research that was allowing them to create super viruses that in all likelihood accidentally leaked into the public and caused 7 million people to die. All statements are based on his frequent disagreements with Fauci during Senate oversight hearings where Fauci's actions and recommendations pertaining to the pandemic were examined. We'll have more on Fauci later in the hour. And spare a thought for the US Secretary of State, we reported about a month ago that he was told there was no way out for Ukraine, yet he still had to continue the charade. Then Hamas attacked Israel, and Israeli retaliation went to the unprecedented levels. Blinken flew to the region to try and make headway with supporters of both sides in the region, with Israel largely isolated and heavily requiring US support. 
only for Biden to have to follow his Secretary of State for a whirlwind eight-hour trip to attempt to smooth things over, only for meetings to be cancelled. Lincoln doesn't deserve a whole lot of sympathy, though, for he was the one put in charge of covering up for Hunter Biden's laptop and getting the US intelligence agencies to call it a hoax when it wasn't. The look on Blinken's face when Joe Biden was asked if President Xi of China was a dictator after the APEC summit was, well, priceless. Meanwhile, before he got to put his foot in it, Biden's microphone had to be cut when he attempted to tell a joke to whoever might listen. The look again on Blinken's face and that of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she of the chronic bowing caused by too much Chinese food on her recent trip, was golden. I'm going to play a clip now. Probably better to be able to be seen, but I think you'll get the message. Very calm. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that you used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that is based on a former government totally different than ours. Anyway. Meanwhile, special counsel Robert Hewer is not expected to charge anyone in connection with the mishandling of classified documents at two locations connected to President Joe Biden, two sources close to the investigation told CNN. Her and his team are compiling a detailed report on the year-long probe that is expected to be critical of Biden and his staff for the way they handled sensitive materials. The report is expected to go into significant detail about what the special counsel's office found in its investigation. Investigated on Hughes' team have told other Justice Department officials that they hope to have the report completed by the end of the year, but that timeline could slide. Ian Sams, a spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office, declined to comment. Her was appointed in January to investigate after classified documents from Biden's time as vice president were found at his former office at the Penn Biden Center in D.C. and at his Willington, Delaware home. A spokesperson for her declined to comment. The Wall Street Journal first reported her isn't likely to bring a criminal case. CNN previously reported charges against him were unlikely, according to sources familiar with investigators' line of questioning, and that there has been no discernible grand jury activity. A decision to not pursue charges is likely to draw criticism from Donald Trump and his allies. One was president with the right to declassify. The other was a senator and vice president who did not. Austrian President Alexander van der Bellen ended up with a bandaged hand in Chisinau on Thursday as the dog of his Moldovan counterpart, Mayor Sandu, did not take kindly to an attempted petting. Van der Bellen and his Slovenian colleague, Natasa Musa, had arrived in Moldova to endorse Sandu's push to join the European Union. Delighted to welcome Presidents van der Bellen of Austria and Musa of Slovenia to Chisinau today, Sandu wrote on X. Our discussions highlighted strong support for Moldova's EU path, marking a significant moment in our journey towards European accession. As part of a photo op, Sandu introduced her dog Kudrat to the visiting leaders. In pictures published by the Moldovan media, Sandu and Musar are petting the dog as van der Bellen looks on. Just moments later, the Austrian leader bent over to give Kudrat the pat on the head as well, and the dog responded by biting his fingers. The unfortunate diplomatic incident was captured on TV cameras and shown by the Romanian outlet TVR. Vanderbellen did not officially comment on the incident. His social media account continued to post unwavering support for Moldova's EU membership and declare Austria a close partner standing by the side of Moldova in these challenging times. 
Photographers, however, spotted him with a bandaged hand while he's entering the presidential palace, later while signing documents with Sando. Moldovan leader made a big deal out of adopting Kudrut on social media earlier this year, noting that the pup had lost a leg in a car accident and was a rescued stray. And one of the UK's most senior generals allegedly withheld evidence of special air service SAS soldiers executing handcuffed detainees in Afghanistan instead of disclosing it to military police. British state broadcaster BBC declared General Gwyn Jenkins, who is now the senior, second most senior officer in the UK's armed forces, reportedly received detailed written accounts of conversations between soldiers describing extrajudicial killings of Afghans in 2011. The BBC claims, citing an investigation by its Panama Panorama program. In March of that year, Jenkins allegedly received information from an officer in the UK's special boat services that his colleagues were unlawfully killing unarmed civilians during nighttime raids, the report alleged. Alleged also that soldiers were routinely killing fighting age males, defined as men aged 15 or over, regardless of whether they posed a threat or not. In one case, it was mentioned a pillow was put over the head of an individual being killed with a pistol. One account in the documents states, per the report, instead of Handing over the evidence to military police as required by law, Jenkins reportedly placed the documents in a classified folder and locked it in a safe. After briefing his superior, General Jonathan Page, of its contents, the BBC also noted that soldiers supposedly placed weapons close to the bodies of unarmed Afghans in an attempt to justify the killings. The failure to disclose the dossier had previously been heard in court, according to the report, but the identities of Jenkins and Page had been kept secret by the UK's Ministry of Defence. Four years after the dossier was locked away, a whistleblower noted the Royal Military Police. Claims of executions conducted by UK soldiers in Afghanistan are presently the subject of an inquiry at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Last month, the court heard claims that the SAS officials had deleted files related to the allegations of extrajudicial killings before investigating authorities could view them. The hearing may lead to a scenario where British troops could be tried for murder, the Daily Mail said on Thursday. And you can compare this to Australian and British military lawyer David McBride, who is himself facing a lengthy prison sentence for allegedly leaking material to the ABC News Channel in Australia about the investigation of Australian special forces operating in Afghanistan. ABC reporters later used the documents as the basis of a 2017 series on Australian war crimes titled The Afghan Files. And coming up after the news headlines, a new era dawns in Dutch politics. You're listening and watching TNT Radio. Newsflash! Now, let's go! TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. U.S. President Joe Biden has met with his Chinese counterpart in California. The leaders of the world's two superpowers coming together for a high-stakes meeting aimed at cooling tensions. Turkey Air's president has declared Israel a terror state and demanded Benjamin Netanyahu reveal whether his country has nuclear weapons. And the UN has lashed out at Israel for its blockade of Gaza, which has left 70% of the Gaza Strip without access to drinking water. At TNT Radio, we never go home. We're committed to bringing you our take on the biggest topics of our time. We're on air 24-7 online globally no matter, no what. matter what. We've got you covered on TNT Radio. Welcome back. There really is a sense of a new era beginning in Dutch politics in next week's snap parliamentary election. 
Not only is a party formed only three months ago topping the polls, but the Netherlands could be about to welcome its first female Prime Minister too. After 13 years as Prime Minister, Mark Rutter is bowing out in the 2020, the 22nd of November election caused by the collapse of his government is being fought on a cluster of domestic crises from the high cost of living and a shortage of housing to healthcare and climate change. Even though it has been only two years since the last vote, many of the leaders are standing anew, including the two frontrunners. What makes the election highly unpredictable is the significant proportion of floating voters deciding which of the 26 parties should fill the 150 seats in the Dutch parliament. There is a minimal threshold and the polls suggest as many as 17 parties could get in. The last coalition took nine months to form and lasted less than two years. Dylan Yasiligos, 46, is the new head of Rutter's Liberal Conservative VVD party and a daughter of Turkish refugees and is now widely tipped to lead her country. Once dubbed a pit bull in heels because of her no-nonsense politics, she has run a slick campaign as the new leader. A promo video shared on social media shows her sparring with heavyweight kickboxing champion Rico Verhoeven. As Justice Minister, she was seen as a tough negotiator and a strong communicator, and her gender has played no part in her campaign. I think she's avoiding these issues because the party has an over-representation of male voters in its electorate, says Sarah DeLong, Professor of Political Pluralism at the University of Amsterdam. She was Justice Minister in the last Rutter government and is seen as more hardline than her predecessor. She appeals to voters under the slogan, On Your Side, promising renewal despite her party being in power for more than a decade, while sticking to a liberal conservative message that plays well with Dutch voters. She came to the Netherlands as a seven-year-old Turkish-Kurdish refugee, but has adopted a hard line on immigration, vowing to introduce a two-tier asylum system, cancel permanent residence permits, and take better control over all forms of migration. Unlike her predecessor as head of the VVD, she has not ruled out working with anti-immigration populist leader Geert Wilders, whose party for freedom, the PVV, is riding high at fourth in the polls. And Peter Omsit, 49, is riding a wave of popularity in Dutch politics with his centrist new social contract party emerging from nowhere as election favourite. But he has so far been lukewarm about becoming Prime Minister. An unlikely party leader, he is riding a wave of popularity, having played a prominent role in 2019 in exposing a welfare scandal that left more than 20,000 families wrongly labelled as fraudsters and deprived of child benefit. The scandal eventually brought down the third Rudder-led government in 2021. Months later, he left the Christian Democrats and took several months off work for exhaustion. Until now, his ambition has been reserved for the backbenchers, but he has not ruled out becoming Prime Minister. I have a strong preference to stay in Parliament, and I've already had that preference for a long time, he said. So what are the big issues in the upcoming election? As a housing shortage it has become so serious that the price of an average home has climbed above 400,000 euro because there are about nine times as many home hunters as flats or houses for sale. State subsidised social housing is in high demand and short supply, while private rents in major cities have rocketed. Students struggle to find accommodation and earlier this year, more than 100,000 people signed a petition calling for more affordable housing. The cost of living with rising prices in the shops, energy and housing have left an estimated 830,000 people below the poverty line. The polls suggest a majority of Dutch people, even on middle incomes, say they're concerned about their future. And with healthcare, care costs are rising everywhere. 
and 5 million Dutch citizens describe themselves as unofficial carers. And Rishi Sunak's popularity has crashed to a record low since the Conservative Party conference in recent polling. Just one in five voters now believe Sunak would make the better Prime Minister, down from a quarter before the Tory get-together, according to the YouGov poll. And in a blow to the Tories' electoral hopes, it means that the figure has reached the lowest point since Sunak entered Downing Street last year. His main opponent, Sakir Starmer's popularity has also fallen, with 32% of the public saying he would make the better Prime Minister, compared with 34% earlier this month. The survey conducted for The Times showed up a significant uptick in the number of not-sure voters, with 43% of the population undecided between the two party leaders. Despite Sakir's personal support slipping in the poll, it showed 28% of voters thought Sakir had a clear plan for the country, which was up six points. Just 19% believe Sunak did, down by two points in the same period. The poll gave Labor's overall poll lead over the Tories a two-point jump. Of all voters, 47% said they would vote Labor. If a general election was held tomorrow, compared with 24% who said they would back the Conservatives. But in Manchester, Sunak told the Conservative faithful, it's time for a change and we are it. So he's now scrapped a handful of his party's own policies, including controversially the northern leg of the HS2, and also softened his stance from the hard left's obsession with everything climate by pushing back such net zero goals. Another move by Sunak was to install what he may consider a brand name candidate, who was former Prime Minister David Cameron, who has returned to government as UK Foreign Secretary. A stunning comeback for the former Prime Minister, which The Guardian argues highlights Rishi Sunak's willingness to take risks as he looks to revive his political fortunes by going back to conservative roots. Cameron resigned when his country voted against globalism by voting for Brexit. It is worth noting both Sunak and Cameron are darlings of the World Economic Forum. Here is David Cameron at Davos, followed by what I'm calling the meme of the week. Well, thank you, Philip, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for that uh, welcome. It's very good to be back in Davos. It's good to be back. And the meme of the week goes to David Osland, who posted this on X. So just to recap, our unelected head of state has given a position in Britain's unelected House of Lords to an unelected foreign secretary on the recommendation of an unelected prime minister. This is what counts for democracy in 2023. Get ready. A kill switch could be coming to a vehicle near you and shut you down on the highway. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The United States Congress just passed a vehicle kill switch that will be required on all vehicles produced in 2026 and forward. This will allow the government to automatically disable your vehicle if, quote, impairment is detected. Here is Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey explaining why he introduced a bill to block it, which failed. It's so incredible that I have to offer this amendment. It almost sounds like the domain of science fiction, that the federal government would put a kill switch in vehicles that would be the judge, the jury, and the executioner on such a fundamental right as the right to travel freely. Imagine a future scenario where your vehicle shuts you down for not having the correct political views or for promoting public health misinformation. This is total control. This is the Great Reset in action. Reject the Great Reset. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. 
challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. A new research by John R. Lott Jr., president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, published in the peer-reviewed journal of Public Choice, found evidence of around 255,000 excess votes, possibly as many as 368,000 for Joe Biden in six swing states, where Donald Trump lodged accusations of fraud. Biden only carries these states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, by a total of 313,253 votes. Excluding Michigan, the gap was 159,065. Courts have rejected challenges to the 2020 presidential vote, generally citing the lack of evidence that any alleged fraud would have altered the outcome in a particular state. Republican plaintiffs argued that since their observers couldn't watch the vote counts or were prevented from seeing other evidence, they couldn't provide such proof without investigations backed by subpoena power. Still, while some judges have agreed that irregularities occurred in 2020, they weren't willing to grant discovery in the absence of evidence that fraud could reverse the election results. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. An Anthony Fauci fundraiser with the Labor Union has been quietly shelved. Are the longest 15 minutes of fame of all time finally up? An expensive fundraiser in Canada scheduled for next week featuring Fauci has quietly been cancelled, with organisers remaining very hush-hush about what exactly happened. The Labourers International Union of North America, which was set to host Fauci next Wednesday, abruptly shelved the event, citing a scheduling conflict, according to the Bay Observer. The event page has now been deleted, and Leuna has not publicly released a statement on the matter. Jordan Schachtel's The Dossier has obtained a since-deleted brochure for the event, which shows tickets for the event ranging from $300 up to $50,000 for two tables of 10. It's $2,500 a seat. Photos with Fauci started at $10,000. After the union event was scheduled, Canadian Freedom Convoy members made plans to protest the Fauci dinner, according to a Rebel News report. Despite retiring at the end of last year, Fauci continues to receive millions of dollars worth of taxpayer-funded benefits, such as a 24-7 chauffeur and a fully staffed U.S. Marshals security detail. Fauci has had perhaps the longest 15 minutes of fame of all time, as his time in the spotlight finally come to an end. Well, if Dr. Thomas Binder has anything to do with it, it will be the end of Fauci and many others, including the World Health Organization. Binder made a plea to the people of the planet at which he calls the COVID vaccine narrative the greatest crime ever perpetuated against humanity. Thomas Binder studied medicine in Zurich, obtained a doctorate in immunology and virology, specialised in internal medicine and cardiology, and has 35 years of experience in diagnosis and therapy of acute respiratory infections in hospitals, and intensive care units, and in private practice. He and others have been explaining the still prevailing corona narrative since February of 2020, is unscientific, unlawful, inhumane nonsense from the epidemiologically relevant asymptomatic transmission, the wrong definition of COVID infection and COVID death, the wrong indication to test to non-pharmaceutical interventions for asymptomatic, formerly called healthy people, are ineffective and do only harm. It was not a pandemic, but a plandemic. Use the wrong test for the wrong vaccine to play zero COVID, which is an an intellectual absurdity. For doing this, we were censored 
labeled or, like me at Easter 2020, even brutally arrested by an anti-terrorist unit in my doctor's office and chipped off to the loony bin because of alleged self-endangerment in COVID insanity. Today, we are totally vindicated. The alleged COVID pandemic was primarily a RT-PCR testing pandemic. Others and myself who have a minimum of basic medical and immunological knowledge, had read the pivotal studies and have some common sense and spine, had already explained the futility, ineffectiveness and insecurity of the modified RNA injections before their criminal emergency approval. Today, we know that they are even negatively effective promote illness and death from COVID and have already killed over 10 million people through side effects, prevented millions of fertilizations and induced millions of stillbirths in the absence of evidence that they saved even one single human life. While there has never been a pandemic of a killer virus, there was a pandemic of cowards and do we doctors see a pandemic of severe illnesses and of sudden unexpected deaths from heart attack, myocarditis, aortic dissection, stroke and pulmonary embolism, thrombosis and inflammation of other organs, especially of brain and spinal cord, disseminated intravascular coagulation, increased infections, including COVID, due to immunosuppression, cancer, autoimmune diseases, infertility, miscarriage and many more. This modified RNA genocide is the greatest medical crime in human history, a humanitarian disaster of unprecedented proportions. So now that this is public knowledge, the greatest medical crime against humanity, what's happening? Are the police involved? Are politicians and bureaucrats facing scrutiny? Are the pharmaceutical companies at least losing their indemnity for perpetuating scientific fraud? Let's go back to Dr. Binder. Currently, the pharmaceutical industry is working on transferring all vaccinations to the modified RNA vaccine platform. It is doing so, though just being able to count and to distinguish foreign from self even having a trace of intelligence, is enough to realize that the modified RNA vaccine platform is totally nonsensical and life-threatening. Its two fundamental flaws are the injection of the construction plan for a protein foreign to the body without having any control over which body cells will produce it, in what dose and for how long and the fact that the cells who are coerced to produce this foreign protein and then present it on the surface will be mistakenly recognized by our immune system as foreign, thus destroyed, much like the rejection of a foreign organ transplanted into you. The alleged modified RNA vaccination coerces your body to produce a toxin in unknown dose and for an unknown period of time and literally transforms parts of you into an alien. 
therefore, the entire modified RNA vaccine platform must be banned immediately. So instead of dealing with the problem of mRNA vaccination, which is grossly underdeveloped, misunderstood by scientific Dr. Frankensteins with the power of God, what is the plan here by government to take on the mad scientists and those at the World Health Organization who are promoting this? Unfortunately, as Dr. Binder explains, our governments have become so weak or perhaps so complicit, instead of challenging the privately funded unelected global health behemoth, governments are preparing to surrender their constitutional pledges to protect their own people against enemies foreign and domestic, for example, and instead turn your country into a medical colony of Tedros Ghebreyesus, PhD, not an MD, from Ethiopia, who three times as health minister covered up cholera outbreaks in his own country, blaming poor testing as the reason said cholera outbreaks could not be verified. Your government is currently negotiating a pandemic treaty with the WHO. If it signs it, the WHO will be placed above the constitution of your country, and not only you, but also your government and your parliament will lose all freedom of choice. Who controls the who? Controls the world. The only reasonable, 100% effective and safe prevention of another criminal pandemic is the immediate smashing of the WHO into a thousand pieces. Whilst Donald Trump announced he was pulling out of the WHO when in office, and has promised to do so again. The Times CNN reported the WHO has been criticised for relying on official Chinese government figures relating to the virus, numbers which many officials doubt are accurate. It also received criticism for a January 14 tweet noting that preliminary investigation by Chinese authorities had found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus. Critics have also questioned whether the WHO is independent enough given China's rising wealth and power. They point to the WHO's effusive praise of China's response to the coronavirus pandemic, which we played on this show yesterday that Bill Gates also praised it. Organisation officials have defended their early actions when it came to fighting the coronavirus, noting that much was unknown about the virus way back in January of 2021. The president had also said that if WHO had acted appropriately, he could have instituted a travel ban on people coming from China sooner. China has total control over the World Health Organization, despite only paying $40 million per year compared to what the United States has been paying, which is approximately $450 million a year. We have detailed the reforms that it must make and engage with them directly, but they have refused to act. Because they have failed to make the requested and greatly needed reforms, we will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. Dr. David Martin has traced patents back decades as he exposed the cunning plans of the globalists to introduce a man-made virus planned for decades with some strange anomalies such as the one attorney Tom Renz exposed in the US Congress as Marjorie Taylor Greene's hearing on vaccine injury, where Renz supplied documentary evidence that a soldier had not received not one but five COVID vaccines dating back to 2014. He did not claim 
to that to be proof, but called for an investigation. Here, Dr. David Martin, speaking to Russell Brand, explains what he knew about how bad and how specifically bad mRNA was known to be as early as 1990. We knew they failed in 1990. Pfizer knew they failed. Pfizer patented them and, and knew that it was a total train wreck. Uh, they knew that when they injected it into animals, the animals died. Um, Ralph Barrick knew that in the late 1990s, as he was working on the modification of what he called coronavirus so that he could inject it into other things and infect other tissues, he knew that it targeted the heart and created a condition called cardiomyopathy. And for the last I don't know. What is that? The last 24 years, we've known that cardiomyopathy is a direct result of the thing he engineered. So is there any data out there, possibly hundreds and thousands of pieces of literature, including patents and scientific publications that actually show that they knew that the heart was the target? Is it possible that we could figure that out if we knew that and we put it into patent documents in 1999 and 2002? Is there any way we could have deciphered that maybe cardiovascular problems were going to happen? Is there any data that shows that by 2011, 2012, and then again in 2014, publications showed that the pseudouridine that was being used in the mRNA shots was a pro-oncologic, pro-tumor generator technology? Did we know that it was going to kill people with rapid cancers? Of course we did, because we knew that it was published just like we knew in 2018 that Ralph Barrick's remdesivir had a 53% lethality in clinical trials done in, if you want to call them clinical trials, I call them biological torture trials done in Africa. 53% mortality if you got remdesivir, and yet that was chosen by the FDA as the drug of choice to to use when people were hospitalized with COVID. These things, Russell, a 53% mortality exceeds any lethal agent we know in nature. There is no such thing as a 53% lethality of anything nature does. But we were able to inject that into people with impunity. And the publication on that, let's get really clear on that, the publication of that data, the 53% mortality data, that publication was the World Health Organization's own clinical trials where they, in their own discretion, determined that it was unethical to inject Africans with this stuff because 53% of them were dying. And in the paper, it's important to point out, it said, regardless of viral load. Russell, let's unpack for the common listener what the heck that means. That means we were killing people who didn't even have Ebola, who didn't even have another disease. Regardless of viral load means we were killing people because we were injecting them with an agent we knew was toxic. And that's what we chose to use in COVID. Anybody who wants to pretend like this was the unknowable, how could we possibly have ever seen this coming? Every single agent, every single side effect was known. And in 2018, the, the coup de grace was they changed the definition of adverse event so that an adverse event can only exist if, and are you ready for this? The adverse event has been proven to be causal in previous scientific data. Guess what? They changed the definition, so there could be no adverse events. So these guys could get up and lie to the public and go, nope, sorry, we don't have any adverse events. Why? Because there was no data published around these injections, and it won't be published for another four and a half years because that's how long it takes to finish the clinical trial. So great news. There can be no risk. It's all upside.
And if that's not bad enough, let's hear from Albert Baller, CEO of Pfizer, also not a doctor. Baller is a Greek veterinarian and the chairman and chief executive officer of Pfizer. He joined the company in 1993 and has held several executive roles across Pfizer's divisions. Prior to becoming chief executive officer, Baller served as chief operating officer. He earned a doctorate in the biotechnology of reproduction at Aristotle University at Thessaloniki Veterinary School in 1985. His doctoral thesis in 1991 is titled Effective Melatonin Implants on Sperm Characteristics and the Freezeability of Karaguniki Ram Semen. I want to get a little into the weeds here and the mRNA technology when you and you and your your colleagues were trying to decide which route to go down the traditional vaccine route or the mrna route you you write that um it was quote most counterintuitive to go the mrna route and yet you went that route explain why it was counterintuitive because pfizer I was mastering, or let's say we had very good experience and expertise with the multiple technologies that could uh, give a vaccine. Adenoviruses, that some of the other vaccines are. We, we were very good in doing that. Um, protein vaccines, we were very good in doing that, and plus many other technologies. Um, mRNA was the technology, but we had less experience, only two years working on this. And actually, mRNA was a technology that never delivered a single product until that day. Uh, not vaccine, not any other medicine. So, uh, so it was very counterintuitive. And I was surprised when they suggested to me that this is the way to go. And I questioned it. Uh, and I asked them to justify how can you say something like that? But they came and they were very, very convinced that this is the right way to go. They felt that the two years that uh, of work on mRNA since 2018, together with BioNTech, to uh, develop a flu vaccine, uh, made them believe that the technology is mature and we are at the cusp of uh, delivering a product. Um, so they convinced me. I, I follow my instinct that uh, they know what they are saying. They're very good. And uh, we made this very difficult decision at that time. Hard to believe that the man in charge of the billions of dollars in Pfizer vaccines is a veterinarian. Tedros, the head of the WHO, well, he happens to be a PhD for writing a paper on dirty water in the Tigris region, only to supervise three cholera outbreaks in his own country and cover them up. And Bill Gates, Mr. Moneybags, is the Earth's doctor, it seems, and in charge of the vaccine scenario, and yet real doctors don't get a say in any of it. Meanwhile, Pakistan and the IMF have reached a preliminary deal for the release of $700 million from a $3 billion bailout package after two weeks of talks with the global lender. The IMF said on Wednesday it reached a staff-level agreement with Pakistan's caretaker government on the first review of the $3 billion fund. Upon approval from the IMF, around $700 million will be made available, bringing total disbursements under the program to almost $1.9 billion, IMF's Pakistan mission chief Nathan Porter said in a statement. And on the weekend, there will be the World Cup cricket final to be played between the two superpowers of cricket, Australia and India. Certainly seems to prove that the months-long event will come to a conclusion and one great game away from deciding who will be the next world champion. Well, that concludes today's edition. 
I hope you enjoyed the show. Up next is Chris Smith. You've been listening to Compass with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Radio.